following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. When I was a, a kid, maybe about nine or ten years old, I went through a period of time where I was having a really difficult time falling to sleep at night. I don't know, some of you may have had this experience when you were little. You may still have this experience. But for me, I don't remember if there was any, any specific thing going on in my life at that time. I don't think there was that made me just have uh, this intense anxiety every time I would try to go to sleep. And uh, as anybody who has suffered from any level of anxiety knows, whether it's clinical or just more kind of mundane, regular variety, the more you think about feeling anxious, the more anxious you feel. Am I right? And if you've ever had any trouble falling asleep, the same thing is true. The more you think, oh, I, I can't get to sleep, I need to get to sleep, I have to get up early, the harder it is to fall asleep. It's this vicious cycle. And I was, I was scared, uh, and I don't know why. I, don't, I honestly don't think there was anything particularly uh, frightening in my life, but you know, when you're 9 or 10, things can be frightening just because they are. And I was um, not getting to sleep. I was staying up way too late. I would drag my quilt out into the, into the hallway outside my parents' bedroom and sleep on the floor some nights. And my mom eventually found a way to help me get to sleep better. And what she did was she read to me a passage of scripture. And it happens to be the psalm that's assigned to this first Sunday in Lent this year. I read it at the call to worship, but in case you weren't here, um, I'm going to read it again, because even if you were here, I'd like, to, I'd like you to hear it with this kind of context in mind. These are the words that my mom read to me um, and helped me get to sleep. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you. No scourge come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Those who love me I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. Isn't that beautiful? I found great comfort in those words when I was a little boy, trying to fall asleep. And I have found great comfort in them at other times since. But as I have grown a little bit older and seen a little bit more of what the world has to offer, I have to admit that this psalm has become a little bit less perfect in my mind. The shine has come off it a little bit. And I don't find it today to be as reassuring as I did when I was 9 or 10 years old. Now, when I read it, I can't help but notice some questions that pop up. Because I read it now as a person who also watches CNN or 
MSNBC or Fox News or reads the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or USA Today or gets news on Twitter. You don't have to look very hard to see what is going on in the world. And when you hold up these words of Holy Scripture next to the words of the newspaper or whatever digital equivalent has replaced it, there are some tensions there. When it says, because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, I have to wonder what the believers in Iraq think when they read these words, and ISIS is one town over. What happened to, I will protect those who know my name? And the sentence, he will command his angels concerning you, seems downright quaint in the light of all the pain and suffering that we can see in the world around us. I mean, angels? Really? My mom loves angels, by the way. (laughs) We never once had a star on top of our Christmas tree. (laughs) I wanted a star so bad, but no, always an angel. So I'm left with attention, and maybe you relate to this on some level. I have a legitimate experience in my past of finding real comfort in a specific passage of Scripture, while at the same time I have a legitimate experience in the present and in the more recent past of having the absence of comfort from that same passage of Scripture. Have you ever found yourself in my shoes? Some of you uh, have been reading the Bible all your lives, like I have. Some of you have come to it more recently. Um, But I think all of us have had moments where Scripture spoke to us in a real way, and then somehow we could not get back to that place later on. Now, it's bad enough if you have your own internal struggles with these Scriptures, but it's ten times worse when someone... uh, quotes scripture at you when you're in a time of crisis. Have you ever had the drive-by scripture quoting? It's like this biblical act of violence. You are in an absolute valley in your life. Terrible crisis. And someone quotes scripture at you in that saccharine way. Oh, well, never mind, brother. He'll guard his angels concerning you. They'll bear you up on their wings. Don't you just want to pray for them when they do that? (laughs) Now, there's something even worse than that because I think that's mostly just somebody being annoying and insensitive, (laughs) usually. And we can at least assume that that person has the best intentions. Sometimes, though, people quote, Scripture in a deliberate attempt to deceive us. I mentioned this a few weeks ago when we were in a series on giving, the the crooked TV preachers, the ones who dress up their uh, bodies and their language with religiosity in order to steal from people. That's That's one way that people deliberately use Scripture to deceive us. Now, I'm not saying everybody who's ever asked for money on TV is a is a con man, but. Um, Many of them are. 
But the words of Scripture can be and unfortunately have been used in all sorts of way more evil ways than that. People use the words of Scripture to justify abuse. They use the words of Scripture to oppress people. If you want to be really freaked out, go and find some sermons from primarily southern pastors during the 19th century. Slavery was still legal and during the Civil War and when the tensions began to arise and within the legal system about slavery. Go look at how those preachers used the words of Holy Scripture to justify this abhorrent practice of slavery. People use the words of Scripture to justify murder. It happens. This kind of deceit can come from everyone, from politicians to parents to partners to pastors. I'm of the opinion that using God's words to harm someone and to gain power is literally the work of the devil. And I want to say to you now that if this book, our book, has been used to control you or to dominate you, to harm you and to abuse you, that I am so sorry that the words of Scripture have been used in that way. And I hope and pray that, that you can find your way back to a place where you can trust the Bible again. Because I really do believe that it contains so much truth, so much beauty, so much of what God has to say to us day in and day out as individuals and as a community of faith. Which is why I say that using God's word to harm and to gain power is literally the work of the devil. Now, I'm not using literally in the um, accidental way. I'm not using literally figuratively, you might say. (laughs) I say it intentionally because the gospel passage that's assigned to today on this first Sunday in Lent, year C, tells the story of Jesus being tempted or tested, the words are used kind of interestingly uh, in this passage and elsewhere, by the devil. And one of the tests, one of the temptations that the devil uses is right out of Scripture. He twists it. So let's take a look. Uh, If you have one of these red Bibles uh, nearby, you can open it up. If you have your own Bible, you can open that up. We're going to go to Luke chapter 4. In the red Bibles, it's on page 835. This is right after Jesus was baptized. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. And by the way, you may think that a 40-day fast is a fabrication, it's a, it's a fairy tale, that that couldn't possibly happen, but it is possible to fast for 40 days. I know a few people personally who have engaged in a 40-day fast from food, and um, you can't go without water that long, of course, but um, you can go without food for 40 days. So if you've ever read this or you heard it just now and thought, that's baloney, uh, it's not. (laughs) At least, (laughs) not necessarily. I mean, I I don't think it is at all, but... um, 
The devil said to him, moving on, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and this is now the devil saying, For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. What passage of Scripture is the devil quoting at Jesus right now? Psalm 91. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now that's called foreshadowing. (laughs) Notice how this series of tests progresses. Now this, this story is often used as a model for how temptation and testing seem to grow and expand, and uh, specifically it's used very often as an example of how you can battle temptation. When the devil attacks you, you quote scripture at him, right? I was told that in youth group, and uh, you know, I think it's a good idea. Um, incidentally, Jesus did not like, have Google at hand to say, what was that thing about bread alone? Shall not live... This is how I look up scripture. <laughs> like that, that, what, what is that? No, he had it memorized. I would recommend you memorize scripture. It's helpful. Now, that's not where I'm going today, that whole, like, you need to know Scripture to combat temptation and testing. I think it's a worthy uh, concept, but that's not where I'm going today. But it is helpful, I think, to see this progression. So here's what happens. First, there's a temptation to satisfy a powerful appetite. Now, in this case, the appetite was hunger, but human beings have many bodily appetites, don't we? And uh, we are tempted to satisfy them all the time in ways that are, you know, not consistent with how God would have us do that, probably. Um, And Jesus' response is, one does not live on bread alone. This is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which incidentally is quoted throughout um, two of the passages of Scripture from the lectionary today. Um, The book of Deuteronomy is quoted in this gospel passage. It's also quoted extensively by the Apostle Paul in the epistle reading from Romans. So Deuteronomy would be a great book to, to get to know. If you're looking for an Old Testament book to read, I would recommend it. Do not live, one does not live on bread alone. And how does that passage continue? For those of you who uh, know the Bible, Jesus didn't go the rest of the way, but it finishes up. But on every word that comes out from the mouth of the Lord. The temptation to satisfy a, a, a powerful appetite. The second temptation is the temptation to political power in exchange for false worship. Um, I don't know if it was an election season in Jerusalem, <laughs> Uh, but this would be a very good election year temptation, the temptation to political power in exchange for false worship. And Jesus responds, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
And then what I think, at least on the face of it, is the oddest of the three tests. The devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple. And how much would I love to give a whole sermon about how Jesus was on the pinnacle of the temple and uh, invited to throw himself down from that spot, but I don't, I don't have time for that. Uh, saying to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Here, as you so astutely noted, he is quoting from Psalm 91. And Jesus responds, again quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, what I think Jesus is saying here is do not do to God what the devil is doing to Jesus. Right? The devil is using Holy Scripture to test Jesus, to tempt him. And the, again, the words are used not quite interchangeably, and they are two different words in Greek, but they are used very similarly. Temptation and testing are very similar concepts here and throughout Scripture. The devil's using scripture to test and tempt Jesus. And he says, it's written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Now, is Jesus saying, in quoting Deuteronomy, that it's inappropriate, according to the Bible, to trust the words of scripture? I don't think he's saying that at all. I think what he's saying is it's not appropriate to use the words of Scripture and the promises therein to try to uh, manipulate and control God. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. It's one thing to trust God. It's another thing to test Him and say, well, essentially, I don't think that you are real or sovereign or powerful. So let's just see how these words of Scripture hold up. There's a difference in posture and attitude. I think there's lots of room for questions and for doubts. At a certain point, that crosses a line into what I think Jesus is talking about here. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not take these words of Scripture and just try to run them into the red (laughs) day in and day out just to see what God will do. Here's what I really wanted to say to you this morning. What I really wanted to say to you this morning is that you, uh, if you are a person who has felt uh, abused or controlled by authorities in your life, who are people who are trying to become authorities in your life, who are using Scripture in that way, I want you to know that you, that you can stand in solidarity with Jesus Himself. Because even Jesus experienced this, not only a time of significant testing, but specifically the twisting of Scripture in the midst of that trial. So if you've had Scripture twisted in your life, somebody wants to dominate or control or seek power or gain control over their their world and you as part of it, or if you are being encouraged to bow down to some other God in your life, Know that Jesus himself stands in solidarity with you. And this solidarity, I would say to you, is the great blessing of the incarnation. Incarnation. This is a very theological word. I'm going to give you a little theology lesson. I'm going to use an icon to do that. Um, 
if you can put that icon up and then dim these lights again, we, this, the sun is so bright off this beautiful white snow that some of the colors are washed out here. But uh, this is an icon that may look somewhat familiar to you. Um, and I want to draw your attention first to Jesus' hand. He's making this gesture with his hand. Uh, and you've probably seen this gesture in lots of iconography. He makes this gesture in many of the icons. There's two pairings of fingers there. One is, is three and the other is two. The three together represent the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the two together represent the dual nature of God, that he is both fully human and fully God. This particular icon is especially poignant with the latter point in that you can see the same thing in his eyes. Do you see the difference between his two eyes on that screen? If you're listening on podcasts, by the way, just Google the Christ Pantocrator, P-A-N-T-O-C-R-A-T-O-R. <laughs> um, I have another a printout of it here that you'll see if you come to the communion table later. That one eye just looks a little bit creepy, doesn't it? <laughs> a little bit scary, right? This is supposed to represent his humanity and his divinity at once. That Jesus is both fully accessible and human, but also possesses all the awesome majesty of God. Right? We have a value here about awe. That we recognize the sovereign power of God. We have a, it's a reverent mystery, that kind of thing. This is represented in this icon. Now, of those two things, thank you, you can put the lights back up if you like, the, the, the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus, I think we Christians are really good about talking about his divinity. We love to talk about resurrection. We love to talk about the miracles. We love to talk about his knowledge. We love to talk about all the things that make him God. And we need that. That is true. It is part of Christian doctrine. But I think what we don't talk about probably enough is Jesus' full humanity. He was completely human. Which is how we can say that we stand in solidarity together with him. Because I think we must assume that this time of testing and all the other ones that followed, remember the foreshadowing, were actually real tests. They were real temptations. When he had not eaten in 40 days and the devil said, here's a stone... Why don't you just, you know, do that little magic thing you do and turn it into bread? I have to imagine that Jesus took a minute to think about it. What you have experienced in your own times of trial and temptation, Jesus himself has also experienced. And that ought to be a great reassurance to you. I know that it is to me. It's his humanity that makes him feel close to us. So when the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Christians in Rome, which is the part of the letter that we read uh, at our confession this morning, that the word is near to you, Yes, in that context, he is talking about the word of an expressed faith. But the object of that faith is none other than Jesus. And we know 
that Jesus is the true Word of God, with a capital W, right? (laughs) Above and beyond all the inspired words written down in the Bible, Jesus is what God has to say. John says in the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is the Word of God in bodily form. He is enfleshed. He is incarnate. And He has lived among us. That's what I take it to mean. When I hear the words, the Word is near, I can think of none other than Jesus Himself being close to us in His own humanity. And if you are undergoing a trial right now, I want you to know that Jesus, who was himself tempted and underwent trials, is near to you. He is near precisely because he is fully human. And he's worthy of your trust precisely because he is fully God. This is the mystery of the Incarnation, and it would be a wonderful thing to ponder this day and throughout the season of Lent. He is near. The Word is near. Let's pray. God, we thank You for these words from Scripture, these stories, these teachings that point uh, the way to You. And Jesus, we look to you as the true word of God. Thank you for taking on the form of our bodies. We share in solidarity with you all the trials and temptations of being human. And we pray that you, by your spirit, would strengthen us to face every trial, to endure every temptation and every test. We give you thanks. Amen. Well, the Word has drawn near to you, and now you have a chance to draw near to the Word. We celebrate Holy Communion every week at Artisan, and I'd like to invite you now if you are following Jesus today, to come to this table and receive into your bodies his own body and his blood. This is the table, as we like to say, not of the church, but of the Lord. So you don't need to be a member here to participate in this sacrament. You simply need to be trusting Jesus for your salvation. And if you are, I invite you to come and receive communion together with us. You can pick up a piece of the bread and remember his body, which is broken for you dipping it in one of the cups. We have both wine and juice. Please use the one that would be more appropriate for you and your family. Remembering his blood which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do it as an act of remembrance and as a way of receiving spiritual food. The food for your souls, as John Wesley says. And do it also as an act of continuity and communion with each other, with all the Christians with all their different doctrines and beliefs around this city, around the world, and throughout time, because this is the great leveling of the playing field. This is the sacrament of sustenance and grace. And it is
is offered to you by Jesus himself. The word is near. Come near to the word. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.